0: This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Nina Power, and Benjamin Sulewicz. Today, Helen is off, so it's just me and Nina. And we're talking about the film Blue Collar and the theme of co-option. Nina, kick us off.
1: Okay, so Blue Collar is a very early Paul Schrader film that he made with his brother in 1978. Uh, the year I was born, (laughs) in fact. And it's set in a a kind of auto plant. And when they were trying to pick a location, apparently no major auto plant that was currently in existence at that time would allow the film to be shot at at their factory. And the only one they could find, which is the name in the film, was the Checker Cab Company, which is actually at Kalamazoo in Michigan. Um, although the, the the plot is large is set in Detroit, um and in a way kind of completely uh com- convincingly I think sets up that um the image that we you might have now looking back at thinking about the auto industry in America, um at, in places like Detroit. Um and I, I didn't check this, but one of the the thugs is called Frankie Knuckles, which is obviously uh, name of a DJ and I, I imagine he got this from this film and it's a very um, yeah and actually the Checker Cab Company, one of the reasons why they accepted the film to be shot there was because they, they were having workplace problems actually and they thought that filming would settle the workers down which is a very interesting <laughs> move on their part um, in terms of like work workplace uh, uh, pacification um, and all three of the main characters um apparently really hated each other and they would have sort of terrible fist fights and it nearly gave uh Schrader a a breakdown. Um and it's a very masculine film. It's a film about men at work, it's a film about men in the unions, about the maleness of these sorts of places. Also uh in relation to um the FBI, in relation to violence. Um it's an image of a, a workforce in which the men are the ones who make the money or try to and the women are uh, mothers and 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 um, control the the house um, a, a random piece of trivia before I get going on my main points I suppose is that it at the time in 1978 it was the film uh, in which the F word was used most of any film up to that point (laughs) apparently 158 times and uh, only broken by Scarface in 1983 and Richard Pryor was at this time a a massive celebrity um, and quite usually as a a comedian or a comic actor so this is one of his few uh, serious uh, roles Um, and he he actually blamed Schrader apparently for getting him back into cocaine because there's a scene in which the The colleagues or their friends um, uh, take cocaine at a party, uh, which was apparently sweet and low, but nevertheless perhaps triggered Richard Pryor, (laughs) Um, uh, to which he was apparently very upset with Paul Schrader. So I suppose the main uh, thing I wanted to to focus on was this. There's a very famous line, which Benjamin, I'm sure you picked up on, which is it's said twice in the, in the film. It's, a, it's kind of like the tagline or that the, the kind of uh, summary of the film. It's spoken by uh, Smokey James, the character um, who says, they pit the lifers against the new boy and the young against the old, the black against the white, everything they do is to keep us in our place. Um, which is an extraordinary uh, statement of uh, a certain uh, very dominant, prevalent uh, logic in uh, employment, economics, um, social life, uh, and I think one of the interesting things um, that we can reflect on, looking back at this film, which is now you know forty forty some years old, is the way in which division has perhaps uh, shifted or shifted around in in the kind of current uh, politics, and this goes through to to questions which are endlessly debated today around class reductionism versus identity politics and this kind of endless and seemingly um uh sort of uh, i don't know uh intransigent battle between the two, uh, as if they're not in some kind of uh, relation, in fact, which is is, is in a way precisely the message of this uh, film, um, the way in which identity can precisely be used in a zero-sum game um, to uh, ensure that uh, the bosses or the capitalists or capitalism always uh, wins, comes out on top. Um, So as part of the research for this film, Schrader went to Detroit, actually, and he interviewed some auto workers. And one of the worker um, told him that they, they all hated management, but they hated their own union more. And this was the kind of motive um, behind Schrader making this film, which is about a very complicated relation, really, between the production line, between the kind of manual or industrial workers, between the union and the union corruption and the bosses, and then also the police and the FBI and the, and the state. Um, so it's kind of significant, I suppose, that this is not a film which pits which which pitches the union as on the side of the workers necessarily it points out perhaps you know that union corruption um has its own uh, meaning and being and i was just thinking today about how many people are actually uh in a union today and i was so i looked up some of the stats and in the uk um in 2019 23% of people were in a union but in 1995 it was 32 um, percent. So And and people kind of continually make this point that union membership is declining. Um, and we can talk about why this is, you know, in terms of the type of labor that people are doing, um, zero, su- zero, uh, zero sum contracts, zero hours contracts, um, for example, as they described in the UK, um, you know, flexible labor, whether people are just kind of completely um, turned away from Union and union politics, or don't believe that they would represent their interest, which is part of the point made by this film. And in the US, and, and I'm sure you can talk more about this. Um, it it was ten point three percent in 2019 union membership, so even lower than in the UK, down from 20 percent in 1983. So, you know, union membership seems to be slowing in both um, countries, um, you know, in decline, um, quite seriously, and. I suppose one of the the main things that's going on since the late 70s, and you know this period that's being depicted in a in a kind of socialist realist way, actually, almost you know very hardcore realist way, um, you know there's some Eisenstein references, is um, the replacement or in fact you know the total destruction of places like Detroit, obviously as documented by people like Michael Moore. Um, and you know we what you hear about detroit today is is things to do with like the the water supply just being kind of perpetually tainted and just you know these kind of completely abandoned cities um and you know in both countries, of course, we had the complete destruction of industry like under Thatcher, you had the total deliberate elimination of um manual labor in terms of the miners and um you know a very very uh determined attempt to crush the unions and to shatter those communities, which still remain very, very divided and very broken in parts of Wales, in parts of the north of England, um, and so on. And, and, you know, this has partly contributed to a kind of political, uh, huge political divide between rich and poor in the UK. And, you know, in the name of, let's say, a knowledge economy or a white collar, so the move from blue collar to white collar, and sometimes described in terms of like the feminization of labor and the idea that work has become increasingly like that you know work that suits women better in a stereotypical sense which is to say employment that um, deals in emotion in character in communication in uh, transmission of messages and data and so on in a way, work that can be done by anyone—it's not hard manual labour. There are a few women in the in the plant in the film, but they're not the kind of main people. They're not doing the main heavy lifting in the in the film. This is again a very like masculine image of of labour. Um, so I think it would be interesting to come back to this idea of like how work itself has changed in the forty years um, since this film, and whether it is in a way a documentation. You know, the owl of Minerva take, takes place at dusk of, a di- of an industry that's in decline or about to be kind of crushed. Um, and the ways in which this continues to happen, the ways in which people are pitted against each other, precisely, <laughs> as uh, Smokey uh, says.
0: All right. Time for me. In Blue Collar, three disgruntled auto workers get together to rob their corrupt union. They discover a ledger full of illegal dealings decide to blackmail the union with the ledger. But very quickly, the union gets the upper hand. It figures out who the three men are, and it devises a plan to deal with each of them. The three men's names are Smokey, Zeke, and Jerry. Smokey is the cleverest one of the bunch. He knows how things work. The company will do anything to keep the workers on the line. He says that line that Nina quoted, they put the lifers against the new boys, the old against the young, the black against the white, anything to keep us in our place. The union knows Smokey can't be bought. He's fundamentally hostile to the government, the union, the company, all of it. They have him killed in a staged work accident. Zeke talks a big game, but he just wants to get ahead. Even when he's criticizing the union rep in meetings, he talks about the life he'd like to have. In his words, And when I take over your motherfucking job, know what I'm going to do, baby? Going to get on my private jet and wing up to Palm Springs, hang out with Eddie Knuckles and hit a few golf balls with President Ford and Nixon and them motherfuckers. The union decides Zeke can be co-opted. He's given a lucrative union job. The question is what to do with Jerry. Jerry is upset about Smokey's death. He demands that Zeke do something about it. But now that Zeke has his new union job, he's not interested in continuing to push it with the union. Zeke tells Jerry he thinks he can change things from the inside. He can make the union what it was meant to be. Why stick up for Smokey and miss out on this chance at real power? Jerry doesn't buy it. Worried that Jerry will expose his involvement in the robbery, Zeke hires men to kill him. Jerry tries to escape to Canada, but he gets in a car accident. When the police arrive on the scene, he tells them everything. At the end of the film, Zeke and Jerry see each other one final time. Each accuses the other of selling out. For Zeke, Jerry's decision to talk to the government about the union is a betrayal of the workers. For Jerry, Zeke's decision to sweep Smokey's death under the rug for a comfortable union job makes him part of the union corruption they were fighting against. As the two men confront each other, Smokey's words play one more time. They pit the lifers against the new boys, the old against the young, the black against the white. Anything to keep us in our place. From the point of of view of the union, the real problem is that the old union rep, Clarence Hill, has lost the confidence of the line worker. They need a fresh face, someone with credibility, someone pra- practical, radical, right? Zeke is the perfect fit. By giving Zeke the union job, they not only get Zeke to play ball, they give the union's image a facelift. Every generation, institutions start to look old in establishment. They have to find a way to restore their legitimacy, and they do this by recruiting young people to personate them. Young people speak in the style of the new generation. They don't sound like the establishment. So when the establishment's words come out of the mouth of your friend, they come out in your idioms. Your friends know what kind of language will work on you. Your friends know what makes you tick. The best way to get to you is to get to your friends first. And so each generation gets co-opted. First, they get the yuppies because the yuppies want to get ahead and will do anything for a check. They use the yuppies to get to the hipsters, the people who have radical pretenses but don't want to get fired don't want to go to prison, don't want to get hurt. After that, who's left? Just Smokey. And if you kill Smokey, who will care? Well, there is Jerry. But what can Jerry do? Go to the cops and expose the union? All that does is strengthen the company. Jerry becomes a pawn in an institutional power struggle. He isn't able to protect himself. He can only turn on one institution by aligning with another. And if he was strong enough to protect himself, What would he be doing working for a car company? I'll leave it there.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about Antigone, (laughs) actually. And um, not that Jerry quite fulfills that role, but it's interesting the kind of what's left over is the possibility of the truly moral position, you know, the one that actually can't be taken outside of the realms of the existing structure, you know, whether it's the workplace, the union, the state, you know. So there is no position in this um, scenario. You know, it's a very pessimistic pessimistic film you know the final scene is you know the former friends um battling each other you know and 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 shouting racial epithets at each other i mean it's very very clear that like when they no longer are friends or indeed when they're no longer comrades and i think this is maybe one of the interesting points it's is is you know what's the relationship between a friend and a comrade it's like those the three guys are are friends but they can be separated and, and dealt with individually in these different ways, as you say, depending on their weaknesses. And, you know, Smokey is also, you know, it's clear somebody who has a very, um, a troubled background, like he's been in prison tro- twice, probably for murder, you know, so he's already kind of tainted as a, as a figure, even, even though he's very charismatic and in a way the sort of this, like you say, the smartest one that in the group, um, but it, their friendship isn't enough to hold them together in the sense that maybe like a comradely relation might be if if they understood their relation to be in a way primarily to, to the means of production or to their economic circumstance. I mean, they do talk about economics all the time. You know, all of them have different schemes for trying to make money. So um, Zeke tries to... Um, uh, trick the IRS by claiming he's got more children. And there's a very funny scene in which he pretends to have double the number of children by borrowing someone else's children um, to to prove to the tax man um, not that it, that particularly works. And and then you have the kind of consumer, very Marcusan Moment with um, all of them really, but they did. They discuss their relation to consumer goods and the idea that they must keep buying televisions and you know um, white goods and so on. But this is kind of basically impossible on their wage. They can't. They're always kind of chasing, uh, chasing these things. And there's a scene where they uh, and maybe it's Zeke uh, doesn't turn the TV off because he says, "I've paid for this. You've got to, You're going to watch it." All the time. Um, and so, whether they're black or white, they're all sort of struggling with with debt. And Smokey also has, I think, gambling debts as well. And he's been kind of hounded by some uh, sinister um, <laughs> loan shark or criminal who, in a way, triggers their um, capture by giving them up um, to the police. And yeah, so, I mean, it would be interesting to ask very naively, I suppose, what would a a properly positive Marxist socialist realist version of this film, like how would it how would it end, I suppose
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that this kind of bond of solidarity, the problem is that it's it's just a personal friendship, right? It's not a properly structured kind of solidarity that has some kind of material base or support. Now, this is the part where the contemporary leftist goes, well, what they needed was a union,
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly right,
0: but they had a union. And the union didn't work. And this is the trouble. When you don't have a union, a union is obviously what you need. But once you do have a union, then you realize that a union is not enough. Because in a society where you have unions, they're widespread. They're all over the place. Well, of course, states and companies have to find a way to deal with them. And they do. Uh, And you are still better off than you would be if you didn't have a union at all. Uh, but the union becomes a less effective instrument as it becomes more institutional, and yet when you don't have something that's institutional, the thing you lack is is an institution
1: <laughs> yeah, so I mean basically, we seem to end up with kind of institutions that outlive their purpose and become kind of ossified stultifying we've discussed this in previous weeks, and you know i'm I'm very obsessed with Ivan illich who's you know, in a way, when we talk about institutional critique, he's really critiquing institutions, <laughs> like the very idea of institution as such. You know, in a way, they all, uh, to his point of view, they all become perverted. They all, they're all perverse, actually, um, all of the existing contemporary institutions, whether it's medicine or school or church. Um, and, you know, in a way, you have to, according to him, forge new ways of living outside of institutions, um, create new networks. And so on. Um, but this might be too simple in, in a, from a Marxist sense, you know, like you say, it's like, actually, is there is there nothing in between the kind of ossified or corrupt institution or the corruption of institutions and mere association or or friendship, you know?
0: Yeah, I think to a large degree, the strength of an institution is its downfall. And the strength is that the institution has a reliable mechanism of raising funds. So that there's, you know, there's a strike fund so that when you try to rebel against the boss, you know, you don't get, you don't go broke, you don't get pushed into a life of crime. There's a strike fund that can finance you're doing that, right? Now, the only way you can have a strike fund reliably is to have reliable union dues, right? So you have this whole infrastructure for collecting and raising union dues, right? But of course, if you have a pile of money that's reliable, then there are going to be people who will look at that pile of money as something they could live off of. Right? So as soon as you have the resources to fund some kind of proper behavior, you also have the resources to fund parasitism. And so the institution immediately becomes a target for people who want to live off it. And then the problem is, uh, you know, even if you, if you accomplish things, the people who, who are living off the institution have this need for the institution to go on so that it can continue to raise money, so that it can continue to supply them with jobs. And so they'll invent endless new purposes for the institution, right? But if you didn't have that pile of money in the first instance, you wouldn't be able to survive. The solidarity wouldn't be able to work. And this is what I've I've noticed in a lot of the more uh, other, other kinds of solidaristic activity that a lot of anarchists get up to with cooperative housing and so on that there's a fragile material base for a lot of it. And the things you would have to do to make the material base more stable would also make the thing more like a conventional institution.
1: Yeah, completely. And it's very obvious that a lot of the the less stable forms of fundraising um do often just end up in immediate corruption and 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 theft essentially. You know, I mean this is, you know, so so when they're very um they're very unsteady, the temptation for people to kind of steal the money and and obviously in blue collar the the union lies about how much money was stolen in order to claim on the insurance, and they themselves are engaged in extremely dodgy loan deals, which is how they the workers try to blackmail um the union um so yes, yeah, so it's clear that there's no um, you know adequate use of the Jews there right there's no there's no trust essentially i mean what you need in a union is 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 trustworthy members who are not going to embezzle the you know, the members' funds.
0: <laughs> all right, well, as soon as you get big, the power of friendship is no longer enough. I mean, even among mm-hmm. these three people, the power of friendship isn't enough to keep them together, let alone once you scale, right? So then you need something else to keep people together. Uh, and the problem is once you have something else, then it's a set of rules, a set of rules which you can potentially bend.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and that's, that's the trouble. You end up needing all these convoluted rules to prevent that from happening. And then these convoluted rules create barriers between the people at the top and the people that they're supposed to serve. Uh, and there bec- becomes a disconnect in perspective that comes about because the people at the top are the people who know these rules, live in these rules, work in these rules, and the people at the bottom don't really understand those rules. You know, so We had a scene early in the film where um, Zeke is complaining about his locker and how he you know, mm. had an injury on the locker and the... Union rep is, is saying, what am I supposed to bring everything into the meeting? How, if I tried to solve every little problem at the meeting, I wouldn't be able to do anything. I have to pick and choose what I bring up, right? Now, that can be taken as straightforwardly. Well, he's corrupt. He doesn't actually care. And there's an element of that. But there's also an element of actually the, the ordinary member can't understand how the union actually negotiates with the company because there's too many rules governing that. And if you've been uh, you know, involved in any union negotiations, I was uh, when I was at Cambridge, they were doing the UCU uh, strikes. And, you know, there are all these updates from the academic union about what's going on and the actual pension scheme and how they make decisions about the pension scheme. There are all these different bodies and organizations. There are all these rules. And so you would have, you know, votes on whether or not to participate in a strike. and You'd have different people telling you different narratives about how it all actually worked and what it is that you could actually do and telling you that entirely different strategies were possible or impossible based on entirely different theories of how these very complex and convoluted rules work and you know even academics even humanities and social science academics at leading universities got into tiffs trying to figure out how the rules actually worked so they could figure out what how they should actually be voted. and i noticed there was a guy on twitter oh what was his name there's a guy on twitter who became a kind of charismatic uh, uh, teller of how the rules work, right? And a lot of people started to trust this one particular academic at this one particular university who seemed to have spent enough time on it to understand the rules, right? But It's this fragile thing because once you've spent enough time on it to actually understand the rules, it's hard for you to then be in the same position as someone who has not spent. Enough time on it to actually understand the rules. Uh, so, the having of the complicated rules, which is supposed to prevent all kinds of, of bad behavior, also becomes a cause of bad behavior, uh, insofar as, as to understand the rules, you, you have to basically have a degree in, in that
1: yeah no I think that's I think that's right. It's a kind of form of um social capital and you know and I think one of the complaints that a lot of people often make about the unions is is just almost like not only the financial divide but almost like the aesthetic divide between the the leaders and the and the members and you know certainly that's often been level- leveled at union leaders in the UK who are accused of being like these almost like gangsters, you know, like these kind of rich men, you know, who are kind of uh, quite arrogant, really. And, um, you know, and again, there's something, you know, often very masculinist about these sort of men, you know, like, especially if they come from industry, you know, which can be quite off-putting. And, and, you know, I think um, they're trying to always get more female Uh, members for all these unions, you know, which is actually working to some extent, but it it doesn't necessarily always carry up to the leadership in any way. So this is a kind of another point. of
0: A lot of that stems from the fact that the peak of unionization in both the US and UK, the late 70s, is before the spike in female participation in the labor force, which occurs over the course of the 80s and 90s. So as the unions were declining, female labor force participation was increasing. Uh, Yeah. And often in different sectors, in sectors that were not the sectors where the unions still remain dominant, because those were jobs which existed prior to the entry of women into the workforce.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think it's maybe in, it's it's about 2010, I think, in the US that for the first time, there are more women employees than male for the first time in history.
0: Yeah, the overall labor force participation rate in the States peaked out in the late 90s and began Mm. stagnating from that point. Uh, There's actually been a fall in inflation-adjusted wages for men since the 70s in the States.
1: Yeah, and this is one of the arguments about the um, unintended impact of of feminism in terms of, you know, joining the labor force, because obviously if you you move from the family wage to a dual income, you can pay both people less. (laughs) And it's one of those kind of horrible ironies where Something that you know is supposed to be egalitarian and progressive of, ends up being um, useful for bosses and for capital.
0: Yeah, and the argument that uh, government childcare mm. feeds into this because government childcare provides a mechanism by which the kids can be parented by nobody.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, I think you know, you we saw that in the '90s a lot of this uh, this idea of like the latchkey kid and. You know, this idea that people, kids were often left alone because both parents were at work.
0: Yeah. One of the things I think is a shame is that the, art, the concept of the latchkey kid has faded out of the discourse. And you always see this where when, when these things started to become problems in the 80s and 90s, when the changes that were occurring in the neoliberal era started to be noticed. We had this wonderful language for describing how things were changing and how they're different. And by this point, it's been so normalized. That now we don't even refer to the idea of kids who have both parents working as potentially a problem. Mm-hmm. If you make reference to this, you're accused of being against women participating in the labor force. And of course, it's entirely possible that you're just arguing that someone should be at home. Somebody, regardless of whose gender it is, right? But if you make any kind of complaint about two income household, you must be you must be attacking the woman working. It can never be that just somebody should be working. I uh, should be at home.
1: No, exactly. I've had this problem before when I've made this point. And it's not just me. I mean, lots of feminists have recognized Nancy Fraser and Zilla Eisenstein. You know, people, women started to realize that this was actually, you know, all of these um, desires of feminism for flexible work and for, you know, uh, female economic emancipation were, as it were, being co-opted or incorporated back into, you know, capital's own plans. And, you know, and I think to point these things out is absolutely not anti-feminist you know, at all. And I think this is why a lot of people became also very interested in, um, autonomous feminism, which, which sought to kind of critique work, um, as such, you know, the very, uh, the very model of work and to, you know, the kind of wager about, let's say, uh, wages for housework, the, the idea that, okay, let's, if you're going to economize, if you're going to make everything exchange, uh, exchangeable, then let's, let's, um, put an economic value on women's unpaid labor. Um, you know which has since sort of degenerated into this concept of emotional labor which did actually have a useful uh conceptual function when and when Hochschild and others were talking about it in the managed heart you know again this is maybe yeah almost 40 years ago i think early 80s maybe you know where she's talking about forms of labor she uses air hostesses but you know many many kind of contemporary sort of um service jobs and and Uh, knowledge, economy, jobs depend upon this uh, selling of one's soul or one's character. And she she meant it to um, to be expansive of Marxist categories of labor, not to be in opposition at all. But since then, I think the concept of emotional labor has sort of degenerated into, you know, your friend is upset and you can't really be bothered to listen to them. And but you do. And then you say, can you send me 10 pounds on Venmo or whatever? Like this kind of horrific idea that emotional labor means listening to someone you're supposed to care about. who's a bit upset, you know, which is not. And, all, and
0: marketizing but... that relationship.
1: <laughs> yes. exactly. Right. Exactly. Right.
0: Yeah. So much of what's been going on is a co-option of, of critical theory. Yeah. So much of critical theory there's a way of interpreting it, which makes it reinforced rather than critique.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a nightmare. So, you know, now you end up in this situation where all critical... Theory- I mean, I went to, I spoke with Benjamin Boyce a few uh, months ago, a couple of months, three months ago. And, and you know, he was kind of, uh, a, you know, he's a very interesting guy. He's very, very interesting to talk to. But, but one of his kind of questions was a slightly antagonistic one about, well, you've written about critical theory. Like, you know, I, I aren't you defending the very thing that's become the problem if you like and i say well no but critical theory was a, a you know as it says like a, an attempt to critically theorize society it wasn't supposed to be something that then becomes you know an ideological pawn but this is i guess how many people like when there's a very superficial attack on supposed postmodernism or on critical theory it's as if critical theory is to blame for the very things that it was trying to understand
0: but you, you know things are getting messed up when you can have something, your critical theory, which is very ostensibly, I mean, it's in the name, a critique, which becomes synonymous with an establishment position, where if you are saying something about critical theory, then the presumption is that you're defending an establishment or a status quo or neoliberalism or something of that kind. And I think that this is, this is the really subversive thing here, is that anything can potentially be turned into a vehicle for this. including and not just including but especially including the stuff which is most ostensibly and superficially aesthetically radical Uh, the more radical it seems the more appetizing it is to take it and twist it and make it into something status quo because you want the people who are taken in by the radical stuff to be brought back into the system and the way to do that is to take the concepts and ideas which are most radical and bend those ideas back in. So the more radical it is, the more incentive there is to twist it and go
1: after it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a kind of classic Overton-Window strategy, but I think very what precisely what comes to mind as you're saying that is these ideas that were very radical, like abolish the police, abolish prisons, abolish courts, which are, you know, I remember seeing Angela Davis at Occupy Philly, like when I was there for a Marcuse conference, like, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years ago. And these were, these were like radical ideas, you know, to people at that time talking about, I mean, she's been talking about prison abolition for, eight, for a long time, but, you know, to, to, they were still marginal ideas, right? Nobody actually thought that there would be a mainstream call to abolish the police. Or anything like that. Like, I'm really convinced that nobody thought that. Um, and then since then, we we actually have these mainstream calls to abolish the police. And what, what's that going to mean? Well, it's if they de- defund or abolish, a, you know, and then defunding is a kind of version of it. Um, you know, it's going to mean like a, a worse state of affairs for poorer people um, and which people can just hire private um Security. And this is the situation in someone like Brazil, for example. There's an amazing um, film called Neighborhood Sounds, which deals with this precise uh, issue to do with security and who has it and who doesn't. And when when everything becomes privatized, everything becomes hierarchized. Um, So, yeah, I mean, so even these, I think anything that begins abolish X, whether it's abolish the family or abolish the state or whatever, I mean, you know, that's about as uh, radical. Linguistically, as you can get to simply say, or to, you know, destroy X, or, um, it's the ultimate sort of revolutionary position, I suppose, destructive revolutionary position.
0: Yeah. Whenever people talk about overton windows, I think about, well, if you go along the corner of a window and you go in one direction along the corner of a window, what do you eventually get to? Well, you get to the corner, right? And at the corner, there's a perpendicular angle and you go right back down the other side of the window. (laughs) <laughs> right. Yes. So once you get all the way out, you've you've gone all the way to the widest part of the window. You're then in a corner where you go back down the window. Uh, so to widen the Overton window is really to move along the side, the top of the window, left or right. Eventually, you hit a corner, and you go down that corner, and you hit another corner, and you end up eventually back where you started. You just go around the window in a rectangle because you're not actually widening the window. What you're doing is traveling along the window until you reach the corner. Mm-hmm. At which point you get rerouted back around the window. Nobody ever widens the window; they're just traveling along it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose my understanding of the open window is that yeah, you say something extreme so that anything lesser still looks good, you know, so that you 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 manage to push through a moderate policy by pretending you were going to do something more radical, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I mean, that's that's not as literal as your image, which is almost like a horseshoe, horseshoe window or something. I don't know, eternal recurrence of the window. Um, it also reminds me of uh, Giuliani's broken window, you know, the broken window theory, like oh, the idea yeah. that you have to clean up the small things in order to um, improve the whole, I suppose. Yeah, whether that's sort of actually true or not. I mean, I was recently cleaning up a, a churchyard in my neighborhood and it's somewhere that's quite um, isolated and people were using it to drink and take drugs and people would bring uh, prostitutes there. And it's a pretty seedy place and it was extremely kind of dirty. Like there's just used condoms and empty bottles and syringes. It's pretty like gross. And we, we, all, we all pitched in and tidied it up. And I was asking the, uh, the Canon whether, there's, whether it had improved and he said, yes, actually, people don't come around there as much to do these, you know, vice-based activities. So perhaps there is something <laughs> to this idea. If you make somewhere tidy, people are less likely to behave messily.
0: Indicate yeah, in some way that somebody cares.
1: E- yes, somebody cares.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think the other thing that really gets alighted in this discussion is is trade and capital mobility and what a role that played coming out of the '70s in just bulldozing the whole situation. You see the way that people in the '70s talked about the crisis of the '70s, and it revolves around the unions and the unions pushing inflation by continuing to push up wages and, and the right going, "Oh, we've got to, to bust up the unions because they're corrupt and they're producing inflation And you know what what actually happened to take us out of that period, uh, is that you have this enormous movement of manufacturing to poor countries where those rules don't apply, those unions don't exist, uh, and uh, an immense downward pressure on wages stemming from that as well, and an enormous increase in the weight of companies because of their credible threat to be able to move. And, and one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately is different private enterprises, different companies, and their ability to move and how their level of influence within our system depends very much on their ability to move, right? Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're in finance, it's very easy to just get an office building somewhere else or to move your money to a different account. Finance has a lot of influence because it's extremely easy to move the finance capital, right?
1: Yeah.
0: You think about a big company like Apple. Apple has factories that are expensive to move. They can be moved. Apple can move its manufacturing to China or to Vietnam. Uh, Apple can sell Apple products in lots of different parts of the world. So Apple has a level of mobility. But because Apple is still tied to physical products that must be manufactured and have to be transported on ships, Apple is not as mobile as finance, right? And then the next step down would be, I think, something like uh, Walmart or Target, uh, you know, a big box retailer, right? A big box retailer has a lot of stores in lots of different places, so it, it can't be hit. From any one location, but it needs to have a lot of stores in lots of places because for it to sell stuff, it needs a large customer base, right? So if you were to say pass a law raising the minimum wage in one US state, that would bother Walmart a little bit in that area, but Walmart has a large enough number of stores that it wouldn't bother Walmart across the entire country, right? But Walmart would be more bothered than, say, Apple. Apple could just move. Manufacturing, And then the step down beneath that would be the actual local mom and poppy store, which really would have a very difficult time going anywhere at all, uh, or say, uh, McDonald's uh, franchise operator, right, who has a, a brick and mortar McDonald's who sells burgers to a particular local set of people, you know, these people can't move very easily at all. And I think that a lot of, of the tension, you know, people, people portray our political tension as kind of workers versus capital. But I think that because of the degree to which the workers have been marginalized over the last 40 or 50 years, a lot of what we're seeing is really tension between businesses that have mobile capital or mobile assets and businesses that do not. Mm-hmm. So the rich people who are tied to a particular country and the rich people uh, or a particular location or city or town And the rich people who can move easily all over the place. So a lot of this argument about Black Lives Matter, a lot of it stems from whether you had a business that was located in a place where there were riots and you felt that your entire livelihood was threatened by those riots, or whether you're a global uh, corporation which isn't threatened in the same way by instability in, say, Portland or Minneapolis. Uh, And I think most of the political debate has been between those two groups and not even involving the workers really at all.
1: Yeah, I think that's a brilliant insight. And I I think one thing that strikes me about a certain kind of Marxist legacy is um a real um I mean hatred not only of peasants but but also of these small business owners in a way, you know, like the Britons is described as a nation of green grocers and that in the in the pandemic, of course it's like the small it's the small and independent businesses that are gonna, you know, have already closed and and the you know, in a way precisely for the reasons you outline. Um Or are under threat, and and I think there's a kind of real inability on the part of a lot of the left to, um, you know, have any respect for those people simply because, in a way, they represent the petty bourgeoisie, or or because they are entrepreneurial to some small degree. But actually, I think this is a kind of increasing um, mistake because, you know, actually, you know, these people, okay, they might own a shop or you know something like this. They might be kind of land landlords minimally they might be bosses minimally um but they are in no way um you know uh, in competition how could they be with multinationals in fact they're in opposition to multinationals and you know certainly there's a kind of aesthetic hipster um love of independent shops but somehow only the right kind of independent shop you know and and this is often to do with kind of political allegiance or perceived political allegiance you know the idea that You know, perhaps these small business owners would be more likely to vote for Trump or for, you know, they might be more likely to be Republican. And there's a debate in the UK at the moment about house ownership and how this plays out in terms of political allegiance. And, you know, the argument is always that if you own your house, you're far more likely to vote conservative and and so on. And um, but if you look at it in terms of what one of the major outcomes of the pandemic is going to be, it already is, is you know, companies like Amazon and, you know, obviously just like swimming in billions, whereas these small businesses are just going to shut. You're going to end up within a completely homogenous um, world, you know, in which there aren't going to be high streets, particularly. Um, you know, there's not going to be any variety. There's just going to be multinationals delivering things to people. Um, and then this this also has the implication about, you know, what is the future of the workforce? You know, are we going to end up with a kind of UBI Situation in which there isn't, they're not even going to sort of bother employing people anymore. They're basically just going to sort of ship people onto a kind of welfare, um, a sort of minimal welfare. <laughs> you know. And obviously this is a huge kind of discussion um, um, on the left as well, whether UBI can be mobilized in the name of the people, as it were, or whether it will be used against them.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think we saw a lot of what is in store in the Andrew Yang campaign because uh, Andrew Yang attached himself to UBI, and he did, you know, what I I, I always like to call a double knot in Bailey. Where depending on who he was defending the UBI to, he presented it differently. So he was talking to a right winger. The right winger went, "Well, won't this be enormously expensive?" And he went, "Oh, well, we're going to cut existing welfare programs to pay for it. You know, it's actually going to end up being cheaper because we'll cut so much of these programs in so much of their ways that." the UBI will be, will be more affordable. And then he'd go in front of a left-wing audience. The left would go, you're trying to gut welfare. And he'd go, oh, no, don't worry. This will be on top of the welfare <laughs> programs. I won't cut or touch any of those at all, right? You go on his website, and, and he's got those hats that say math. And the math is completely different depending on which one of these various versions of the UBI he actually means. The the version on the website is is written to be vague enough and changes often enough that no one can be quite sure. And during the campaign, I did this. I I checked his website regularly to watch how it evolved. And the proposal constantly changed. And the claim that it all worked out based on the math was based on the original proposal before it was changed in response to all these criticisms. And by the time it had been changed so many times, the math was, of course, completely rubbish, completely Uh, And and I think this is the trouble that a UBI is immediately politically uh, interesting to both the left and the right, but only if it is something which the other side will reject. So when people say, oh, yeah, UBI, it's not left, it's not right, it's forward. uh, Only a version of UBI, which has no clear content, which no one understands. Only UBI is a raw slogan. And increasingly, that's what policy is. It's a raw slogan that you then redefine depending on which audience you're in front of. So you know, if you're Kamala Harris, Medicare for All means eliminating private insurance uh, until you're in front of the right, and then it means changing the age at which you qualify for Medicare, lowering it or raising the, the younger, you know, the, mm. uh, lowering the age or, or uh, changing the income where you qualify for Medicaid. You know, it just becomes a bunch of slippery crap. And same thing for Green New Deal. You know, does Green New Deal mean big infrastructure investments? Does it mean regulation? Uh, what does it mean? Well, it, it depends on what audience proponents of Green New Deal are in front of. And so you can't trust any of these policy debates anymore because policy is a slogan and it's a slogan in large part because um, at this point, there is nothing like a manifesto that you can hold anybody to mm-hmm. in politics. I think even in European countries, it is now so regularly the case that if a left-wing party gets into power, it has to get into power with the coalition. You, you rarely ever see a left-wing party that is in power on its own. And if it is, that party has internal divisions within it that would, under other circumstances, result in a split and in there being multiple parties. So nobody is. At, everyone always has the excuse of the other parts of the coalition or the other parts of the party which are in the way. But the reality is that these slogans are largely used by the group of people who are the Zekes, the group of people who have been co-opted, And these slogans are being used to to keep these people cool and to keep their organizations and parties cool with the kids. But there's no intention of actually doing anything constructively.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose psychoanalytically, you know, I was watching some of these very mean uh, body language analysis videos of um, AOC, and uh, you know, you can find them online, and and they're very harsh. But one of the interesting points that this woman who does these analyses. makes about AOC is that she's brought up in an age in which she's um a kind of you know totally media saturated Instagram kind of online TV age in which everything everyone does is designed to appeal to the person they're speaking to so which kind of accords very well with what you're saying about the audience um Division, right? So people, politicians aren't coming out and making clear statements. They're they're saying what they think their particular audience wants to hear in different contexts. Despite the fact that all of these things are recorded and all of these things, you know, in analysis are completely contradictory. For some reason, it doesn't matter. It's so psychoanalytically, it's like everyone is simply saying what they think the audience wants to hear.
0: Yeah. Because the audience is only sensitive to the aesthetic. The audience really is not able to pick up on whether or not someone is trustworthy on substance. The audience evaluates that through the heuristics of, does this person sound like someone I can trust? Are they behaving like someone I trust, someone I know, someone I'm friends with, someone I have empathy for. They're using all of those heuristics. You know, I, I, uh, the other day I was looking at this magazine article and it was for a, a knee treatment for the elderly. and it said, you know, people are are coming from as far away as Las Vegas for this miracle knee treatment. (laughs) It was a whole page ad and it had tiny little print and it was just paragraph after paragraph of different old people going, I went and I had this knee treatment and oh my God, it changed my life. It changed my knee. It was amazing. You know, and you go through it and to someone of my generation, uh, a big long ad like that with a bunch of people telling their story in tiny little print reads like something that was written by a huckster, by someone who's trying to rip you off that new treatment might be great, but that ad, the style of that ad says to me, this is somebody who's trying to stand the elderly, right? <laughs> right? Now for the generation below that, it's gotta be on television. It's gotta be some kind of, of on television ad or somebody on the news telling you about, you know, Oprah Winfrey telling you, I used this thing. Mm-hmm. I, I read this book. It was really great. It changed my life. Let me share it with you. And because you like the TV personality, and the TV personality is talking in a kind of young boomer or Gen X kind of way. Uh, you know, then that is the thing that becomes compelling. And of course, we look at the people on TV and go, oh, my God, MSNBC, CNN, those TV people, they're all Oprah, uh, neoliberalism. Yuck, right? But the Instagram person, the YouTuber, that works on people our, our age. They have an aesthetic that makes them credible with us. And, and this, is, this is the trouble. You can always call out the thing that screwed over people in the past because you can see how they followed it and it didn't actually help them. But they're not gonna give you the same version of it again. They're gonna give you a new version of it from people in your own generation, in your own cohort, who grew up with you, who have been your friend from the time you were a kid, who know everything about what you like, who can make ads that are tailored specifically to you, and now they have big data to give them even more information about what it is you like, what it is you respond to, and they're using social science and quantitative social science to help them with this. And a lot of these people, they go along. I see this all the time. I see, you know, people in, in social science, especially in the States, they start getting into math, they start getting into math all of a sudden, because you know, math is how you get hired. And what is it that social scientists who are good at math are principally hired to do Well, they're principally hired to market stuff to people. Even politically, you know, whether it's you're being hired by a party, or being hired by a company, whoever you're being hired by, if you're a social scientist who's good at math, you're being hired to do marketing. Uh, and increasingly, that's the job-sensible way to be a social science person and not go broke. Yeah. So especially in grad programs, you know, I'll see so many people, they're doing a master's, and it's because they were in the workforce for a little while, and they want to they get the real money, so they want to figure out that math. What, math is always a bad sign. <laughs> I, I, I hate to say it because I know lots of people love math, and you know, in, a, in an ideal world, math would be a complementary thing that we would use to help us out. But increasingly, math is a bad sign.
1: I, I think in an ideal world, math would be a, a form of you know, beautiful artistic practice with no practical use whatsoever. Like, I'm a deep Platonist about numbers. And uh, I suppose it's interesting talking about social science plus maths, because it, I think in the 90s, it was psychology graduates that were primarily being picked up by companies in order to, you know, precisely market and brand things. But they thought psychology would be the useful um, subject. More than social science plus maths, um, because I think they were thinking along the lines of like um, behavioral economics and nudge theory, which a lot of British governments tried to use in order to like get people to stop smoking.
0: Yeah, all the other disciplines saw what economics was doing and how economics was managing to get people hired, and they've all been copying Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. With slightly different flavors. So, yeah. you know, this idea that you, it doesn't work just to tell people to stop smoking, like it actually makes it worse. Um, but if you just ban smoking everywhere, people stop smoking like that's So you change people's behavior and therefore you change, you know, you change their environment, therefore you change their behavior, basically. Like you do it that way around. And, you know, like all these claims they make, like uh, you're more likely to get divorced than change your bank. Um, you know, so they kind of notice all these patterns of like, um, yeah, sort of uh, inanition and action. And they're not then, because people are not rational agents, would be the story, right? So people are not at every moment rationally calculating how to get a better deal on everything. And so you can kind of use that against them, <laughs> basically.
0: You can use anything you know about people against them. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and
0: so I think, I think that's the, the value increasingly that people see in, in sociology and political science and a lot of these disciplines. And it it sucks because a lot of these people got into this stuff to help people. That's what attracts a lot of people Mm. to doing. You know, if you were originally going into this for the money, you would be, you'd pick pre-law or pre-med or something like that. People don't pick these disciplines just to make a ton of money. But then what happens? Well, you get out in the world and you can't use it to help people anyway. And then you cope with the fact that you feel useless by trying to have a family and then you have to feed them.
1: (laughs) Yes. No, exactly. And then, yeah, precisely. And then you're kind of uh, manipulable by these things. And yeah.
0: Yeah. Anything you do to cope creates a weakness that can then be exploited. Mm. Anything you do to make yourself feel better has a cost that can be used to extract something. from. You.
1: Yeah. And I think it's it's interesting just on the, the geographical point, you know, what used to be a meeting place for workers, like the factory, like outside the factory, the factory gate, you know, where you would pick it and strike and you know, um, it no longer exists in the West, largely. I mean, there are still factories, obviously. But, you know, so, so to actually bring people together and, you know, to even go to a union meeting, why would you go to something outside of your work hours? Like, this is also a big ask for a lot of people. And, you know, when I was writing One Dimensional Woman, which is a long time ago now, like came out in 2009, and I was writing about the rise of these very feminized um, job agencies, you know, where basically you sign up to to an agency and they take, they send you anywhere. Right. So you literally don't know who your colleagues are, like both at the place you're sent to work at for two weeks or who, who is on the book, the agency books. And, you know, so these are very, very clever ways of dividing the workforce. So you're not, they're not even, there isn't even a workforce in the same way that there are, there's a factory and there are workers in the factory. Like you don't know who your colleagues are. Um, And, They were just bringing them in a lot of this time and they were called things like office angels and they were sort of branded um in the name of a certain kind of flexible young woman image you know like isn't it cool that you have a job that has no benefits because you can just like work for two weeks somewhere and never have any holiday pay or sick pay or whatever you know is but it was really this it was kind of clever move because they were picking up on the fact that people wanted flexibility and a lot of the people they employed were students and, you know, so on. And, um, but when they started opening these things eight job agencies in Italy, for example, like they got bombed, like anarchists would just bomb these job agencies because they could see in a way what was, <laughs> what was coming, like what they represent, because, you know, to divide the labour force at its root, basically, you know, and to permit no meeting with your fellow workers. I mean, that's what they, that's what they did.
0: Yeah, flexibility and precarity are two sides of the same coin.
1: Exactly. Whenever
0: they say flexible labor markets, they mean precarious labor markets.
1: Yeah, no, exactly.
0: Yeah. Well, that's about the end of the hour, guys. So we're going to go over to the Patreon episode, Side B. If you follow us along on Patreon, you can listen to that. And thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.
1: Bye.